Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, two filmmakers take us into the private world of a religious school for girls in Syria. Back in 2008, Julia Meltzer and Lauren Nix began filming the work of Huda el-Habash. Huda is a conservative Muslim, a wife, a mother, a preacher, and the founder of a girls' religious school in Damascus. Many people don't think of Islam as empowering for girls and women, but in Meltzer and Nix's documentary called The Light in Her Eyes, they present a world that challenges that assumption. Huda and her students and fellow teachers are devout Muslims, but they're also lively, curious, and hungry for religious and secular knowledge. The Light in Her Eyes will air on the PBS program POV this Thursday night. Today we're speaking with Julia and Laura about Huda and her students and about the challenges of making this film as American women, one Jewish, the other Christian, coming from a secular world. They speak to us from KPFK in Los Angeles. Julia Meltzer, Laura Nix, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. First off, I'd love it if you could describe for our listeners the world of the Al-Zahra Mosque Quran School, where much of the film is set. The world of the mosque, um, the women's side of the mosque, because Al-Zahra Mosque is is a mosque for both men and women. Um, the women's side of the mosque, the entrance is off to the side, and most of what happens happens upstairs. And it's a really lively um really busy place. It's like a community center. Um, so you'll walk in and you'll find girls ranging from three years old to women who are in their 60s or 70s. And most of them are from the communities surrounding the mosque. And it's a very active, almost like a social club. Julia, you first discovered the school when you were living in Damascus back in 2005. What were you doing there exactly? And what drew you to the school? I was in Syria uh, as a Fulbright Fellow. I was teaching journalism at the University of Damascus, and I had a colleague who was also a Fulbright Fellow who was studying Quran and looking at Jesus and how Jesus is represented in Islam. She's Catholic, and she was studying Quran with Huda, and um, she brought me to the mosque. Is that kind of school, a religious school for girls, very unusual in Syria? No. Now it's not unusual. Um, maybe 15 to 20 years ago, it was much more unusual. But now there's many schools that happen at mosques where girls are going to study Quran. Um, and it's like Bible school or Hebrew school. Now, Huda is not a very easily characterized uh, heroine. When we first meet her in the film, she's in the kitchen preparing dishes of ice cream for her family. And she makes it very clear that her first priority above all is serving her husband and raising her children. But she's also a very compelling preacher, and she's a mentor who encourages her students to think for themselves. She's also a very wonderfully warm maternal figure, it seems to me. Laura, I wonder, how did your sense of Huda evolve as you followed her, and what did you find most surprising about her? Well, one of the great things about making this film is that all my definitions of the words progressive, conservative, secular, religious, they were all turned upside down. And knowing Huda over time was pretty fascinating because she is such a mix of these progressive, what we call progressive and conservative values. Um, she's a woman who possesses a natural amount of authority, and um, she's also a very humble woman, and she's a humble person um, before her God. And I think that much of that humility comes from her deep faith. Um, so over time, getting to know her was 
was very rewarding because as you you know she's she initially comes off as a person who's very um intimidating but you sense her warmth over time and as you get to know her she opens up and you you see a person who's more vulnerable and you see someone who's more maternal to her students and a wonderful mother and she just becomes a much more complex character but you know i think that one of the people one of the reactions that audiences have when they watch the film is one of ping-ponging back and forth in their reactions to her. You see her say something and you think, wow, that's really great. And then the next scene you see something and you say to yourself, I don't think I agree with that at all. And you kind of go back and forth. And that's kind of what it was like for us as filmmakers, filming and being in the edit room, um, trying to balance our reactions to this person and to this world. Is there an example of something that Huda said or did that really surprised you? She didn't surprise me so much. I mean, because once you get to know her, you kind of get a sense of how she's going to answer things. Um, I think it's over time just having some surprise to the degree of autonomy that the women had in the mosque and um, how hard everybody worked. I think that that's not surprising, but it was very striking to understand how much time people were spending um, memorizing the Quran and being involved in this activity and the discipline that it took to pull that off because they're doing that in addition to all the rest of their work. They're doing that while they're in school. People were, were completing you know, degrees in engineering and pharmacy, but they were also spending all this time memorizing the Quran. And the amount of time and um, labor of love that that takes is, is really striking. Yeah, that was a really fascinating thing. I mean, there were girls as young as, I think, seven or eight in the film who had memorized the entirety of the Quran. And I think for a lot of listeners, uh, that kind of rote memorization might seem somehow um, useless or mindless. Uh, That's not their take on it at all. Can you sort of share with us, Julia, the, uh, the attitude of Huda and her peers toward memorization of the Quran? Well, first of all, memorizing the Quran is a practice that goes back to the time of the Prophet Muhammad. The Quran originally was a text that was passed down through oral tradition. So it was a text that people memorized, and um, and they sang it the way that the Prophet Muhammad did. Um, so it's a, it's a very, very old tradition. You know, I had a bat mitzvah, and I memorized my Torah portion and my Haf Torah, and it's a very, very similar tradition. I mean, as Jews, we don't memorize the whole text, but it's a very similar way of chanting a holy text, and it's something that you do in front of your community, and it's a rite of passage. The women in the film also make the very uh, convincing point that they need to know what the Quran says so that they can um, refute people who say, you know, the Quran says that you as a woman can't do X or can't do Y, and then they can say, well, actually, I know the Quran as well as you, and it says I am allowed to work, I am allowed to, you know, drive my own car. <laughs> yeah. The Quran doesn't exactly say that. But <laughs> that's funny. Um, but, but yes, certainly, certainly, um, you know, there are there are passages of the Quran that say, well, women should stay in their houses. However, also, the Prophet Muhammad's wives were, were business people, and they left their homes, and they had they had businesses in the communities. So one of the things that Muslims do very often is look to the life of the Prophet Muhammad as an example. And they, you know, quote hadith, which is the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, and use that as an example for what type of life they should be living up to. Um, and many women in the mosque said, well, 
the wives of the Prophet Muhammad's were business people and they advised him. And that's who we are too. We do that for our husbands and we own businesses and we're dentists and we're doctors. And we do that because that was something that women did in the time of the Prophet Muhammad. The film also takes us into the lives of your subjects beyond the walls of the school. We go into their homes. We go with them on trips to the mall or to a cafe and so forth. Was it hard to get that kind of access? And how did you do it? How did you gain their trust and also the trust of their husbands and their parents and just their, the general community? It, it took a long time for Huda to agree to be filmed. And it took many years of, um, for you know, Julia going back and talking to her again and again before that process was um, able to move forward. And then once we started shooting, we had to revisit that access again and again. Um, it was, I won't quite say that we were starting from scratch every time we went back, but it got increasingly harder every time we went back to keep shooting. I think that it's typical for people who aren't um, versed in what it takes to make a documentary film to be, you know, not to not be able to understand um, how much filming you have to do in order to be able to put a film together. They kind of think you're crazy because you keep showing up to shoot and shoot and shoot, and they're like, my God, you must have what you need already. What was Huda's initial uh, reservation about uh, participating or being shot on film, and what was the uh, argument that finally convinced her to go forward with you two? Huda, um, her reservation really, I think, was very pragmatic. Um, Working with an American um, and having that American visit you daily at a mosque draws attention. And... You just don't want to draw attention to yourself, particularly with Americans. Um, So I think her reservation was just like, I'm not exactly sure what you're doing, and I don't want to have to deal with people asking me questions about why you're here. Um, And I think then, because I was so persistent, I mean, I met Huda in 2005, and I returned to Syria every year since then, and I visited her every time, and I said, I'm still interested in making that film, and it's why I want to make the film is because I want to show a different side of Islam. You know, what you're doing here is really interesting to me. And I, it was true, and she believed me. There must have been a lot of stuff that happened off camera that you weren't able to film, either because you just couldn't get access or it was too awkward or would have been an imposition. Uh, are there any particular encounters or exchanges like that that you can share with us? It's so hard to... I try and summarize how much happened off camera that we would have loved to have shot and put in the film. Like, I, I don't even know how to describe it because there's so much. Um, the limitations around shooting this type of world are extraordinary because it's a really private world and because there's a lot of um, social rules about what you can show and what you can't show. So, for instance, we'd be shooting at a villa in this, you know, in the summer and the heat, and it was. Um, I think it was like 110 degrees one day and people were relaxing next to a swimming pool and then they started singing and, you know, people were engaged in a really just casual, warm circle of women who were singing and there's a there's some social restrictions about showing singing on camera and um, that was not something that we can shoot and somebody had their hijab kind of off and so we couldn't show that or they had like they had taken off um, – like their coat, and so some of their arms were showing, so we couldn't shoot because they weren't covered completely. Um, That's one of the many scenes that I remember that was just such a beautiful, lovely moment that showed the intimacy and the community amongst the women that we couldn't capture on film. 
Yeah, many, like, there'd be a lot of time that we would be in people's homes where, you know, the way that women are in their homes together, they often really dress up at home because that's the place where they visit with other women and they take off their hijab and they, like, do their hair and wear a lot of makeup. And, uh, you know, there's a scene, um, actually, it's not in the TV cut, it's in the longer cut of Reham's birthday party. Um, And that was, you know... Reham's mom in the scene is wearing her hijab. But, you know, the party was what women were all dressed up and and they 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 can't appear with their hijab off on camera. And so the actual way that people are with each other, that women are with each other, we couldn't capture that, you know. Mm-hmm. Reham is a very interesting character in the movie. She's is she 13 years old. She's young. She's and her mother says very explicitly you know, she can uh, pursue her education through high school, and then our way is that then she'll be married. And for a viewer from the West, like me, it's sort of uh, a little bit sad because she's somebody who has so much curiosity about her and so much enthusiasm about everything. I mean, she's just very infectious, her personality, to feel like that will sort of, that road will end for her. Uh, I felt a vicarious disappointment for her. Yeah. It's hard because a lot of a lot of the girls in the mosque, that's going to be their lives. And, you know, I think for us, it's really sad. Um, For them, I think for some girls, it's sad. But also, you know, they have a very full life with their families and their children and getting married young. And that's it's it's deeply in that culture. And when you don't do that, you're outside of that culture. Can I add a note about something? Yes, go ahead. Um, so this character that we're speaking about, Reham, she's not a character that's included in the POV broadcast. If um, you go to the POV website, Reham, there's a there's a deleted scene where we show the scenes of Reham, and she does appear in the feature-length film, which is um, uh, part of our DVD that's on sale on our website. It's part of the theatrical version of the film. Getting back to the film for a moment, you two don't offer simple answers to the question of how this religious education may or may not empower these girls. I wonder what kind of reaction you've had uh, to that question from audiences who've seen the film so far. You know, the idea that we have about conservative Islam, in particular about women's role in conservative Islam, is like immediately a negative one. And I think people get from our film that it's a mixed bag that there are women who were forced to leave school because of their family or because of the tradition or the culture they're living in and because of who do they go back to school. And, you know, there's a woman in the film who left elementary school and went back to finish that in high school and then is in college. And she's a teacher in her town. And that woman would not have done that from anyone else but from Huda. You know, she's the one that encouraged her to go back to school. And there's many other older women who I met in the mosque who said, my life would be lonely and miserable if I didn't have the mosque. I I think that a lot of American audiences in particular, the type of folks who go to film festivals and listen to public radio and, and the like, there's a very, there tends to be a bit of a secular bent. And the idea that you could go to a religious place and that you could be gaining um, benefits from memorizing a holy text is challenging to a lot of our beliefs about the importance of secularism and the way in which that's influenced what we consider to be modernity. 
And what we found is these are modern women who are choosing to be religious. And I think in the States, there's an assumption that um, being religious is somehow backwards and anti-modern. And what we found was a place that is, is just turning that upside down. It's turning that idea on its head. You finished shooting the film in November of 2010, just four months before the popular uprising began in Syria. Do you have any sense of what has happened to some of these people, to, to Huda, to Riham? Where are they now? We don't know what's happening with Riham. We do know that Huda, they moved to the uh, Arab Peninsula, Huda's whole family, but many members of her family actually are from Hama. And um, I don't know in detail what's happening with them, but it's a really unsafe situation. I mean, particularly in Hama, very unsafe. And Damascus is becoming more and more unstable. Um, and, you know, the regime right now is, uh, they're, they're pretty, pretty, you know, violent, crazy people. And, um, uh, you know, anyone can die at any moment from something happening that the, the army does or from crossfire between various opposition groups in the regime. As of yesterday, the Red Cross um, designated what's happening in Syria as a civil war. And, I mean, the fact is it's been like that for a while now, but now it's official that it's being classified as a civil war, and it's it could take years for this to change and for this to be sorted out. Julia Meltzer and Laura Nix, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. Julia Meltzer and Lauren Nix's documentary is called The Light in Her Eyes. It airs on the PBS program POV this Thursday night. You can also catch it online. It's streaming on the POV website until August 19th. You can find out more information about the documentary on our website, tabletmag.com. It is a fascinating film. I encourage you all to take a look at it. Of course, we would love to hear your thoughts on our podcast today. Send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com or just go for it. Post a comment on our website. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next week. We're going to be talking about the Olympics.